Oh, Lord, I just thank you for today and for a new day that you gave us. I thank you for this word that you've given us in Ephesians, and I pray that you would bless us, all of us, with your word today. Would we leave here with a greater understanding of who we are in you and what we're called to do and who we're called to be? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me ask you a question first. Um, How do you feel about the world? in general. I know it's kind of a loaded question, but when you look outside of these walls that we're in right now, when you look outside of this safe bubble that we're in, what do you think? Do you watch the news and do you feel maybe anger? You know, the world's going crazy. How can any of this stuff happen? Or maybe you put up walls and you ignore the news and you don't have to think about it at all. You're just going to live in your own world and pretend that nothing's happening. You're safe right where you are. Now, however you feel about the world around you, I want to remind you today of the purpose in all of it, all of it, everything that you see. In the midst of all that you see and feel and fear and hope for, there is a greater purpose at work, okay? So open your Bibles with me. We're going to turn to Ephesians 3, picking up where we left off last week, starting in verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And so as we return to the text this week, we're going to find that we're picking up really in the middle of this thought. We sort of ended on on this comma at the end of last week. So let let me remind you, Paul started in verse 1 with this really, this deeply personal introduction into what he was about to say. What did he say? He said, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ. And the way he said that, remember, was significant because it set the tone for the rest of what he was about to, to write about. The man is a prisoner of Rome. He's writing here now to encourage the Ephesian church. And when he begins his thoughts in the chapter 3, uh, as soon as he mentions his chains and his purpose with those chains, he decides that he needs to clarify a few things. And that's why he went off this tangent, so to speak. In verse 7, it says, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And so here we are. We're continuing Paul's thoughts now from verse 6, where he's saying that the the mystery is that we are united together in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And pause for a minute. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. And so think about that just for, for one second. How was Paul made a minister? For what reason was Paul made a minister? Look again at how Paul identifies his own purpose. We've seen him give himself a few titles already. In Ephesians 1.1, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Ephesians 3.1, we looked at that last week. He said, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, 
on behalf of you Gentiles. But how does he define his own work as an apostle? What's his purpose as an apostle? What is the purpose behind his captivity in Christ? Paul's role is realized as a minister of the gospel. That's what he's saying here. And that word minister could even mean uh, servant. And sometimes Paul does use it to mean servant. If you look in 1 Corinthians, he says in the same word, what is Paul? A servant through whom you believe. I think the better reading here is minister because it ties into this idea of administration of grace that we looked at last week for, uh, for Paul for us. And so just before his conversion, Paul had one thing in mind. So I'm skipping my pages around. Now, just before his conversion, he had one thing in mind. But before we get to that, uh, it comes with the same uh, picture, rather, minister. It comes with the same picture that you imagine of a servant. Ministers of gospel are servants of God's gospel. And so we're actually going to look back at verse 6. I made a mistake this week, and I didn't print single-sided, so uh, we're jumping around a little bit. So we're going to do a quick reset on my 30th birthday, uh, and we're going to go back to what he was talking about uh, in verse 6. So why did he go off on that tangent? Well, it's better to do that now in the beginning than halfway through the sermon when you guys are all sorts of confused. Um, so thank you, Lord, for revealing that now. Well, verse 2 and 3. All right, back in chapter 3, he clarifies some assumptions. I thought that didn't make much sense. Um, and these assumptions are this. We need to understand that he has been given God's grace for a reason. That's what he's saying in verse 2 and 3. We need to understand that he is showing God's grace to the Gentiles, to people like you and me. We also need to understand what he means when he throws around the term mystery. Remember when Paul uses the term mystery, we looked at that last week, it always has to do with some sort of Old Testament writing that was not fully understood until now. So what was that Old Testament writing? What did it hint at? What has God been saying for ages but not fully revealing until Paul mentions it? In verse 6, he said, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You and I are heirs together with Israel. We are members of the same body together with Israel. We are partakers of the promise together with Israel in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That was the mystery. We are saved, all of us, look around, all of us completely, utterly, exclusively by the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace that he has offered us. There is a place for you in his temple. That is what Paul is saying. His grace was not given to you carelessly. He's saying, you and I, Paul and the Ephesians, are not afterthoughts. Purpose was the pretense of verses 1 through 6. And purpose is going to carry us on into these next verses. So now, look at me, or look with me at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And so here we are. We're continuing Paul's thoughts in verse 6 again. The mystery is that we are united together in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, we're going to pause. Wait a minute. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. And why? We looked at that. We looked at his titles, apostle of Christ Jesus, prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why? His role is realized as a minister of the gospel. His role is realized as a servant of the gospel. And so um, 
it comes with certain ideas. It comes with certain pictures. When you think of this minister, when you think of servant, this position was not given to Paul uh, in order to give him any sort of exaltation. It was not given to Paul in order to give Paul any sort of power, and it was not given to him in order to give him any wealth. And at one point, Paul had all of those things in his life before Damascus. He was, Paul was, by his own words, he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was raised by a powerful Pharisee, and he became himself a powerful Pharisee. He was zealous for his faith. He was the champion of the Jewish faith. Blameless, as far as anyone can see. He had position. He had power. He had authority, and he even used that power and authority to persecute the church. And now we know Paul was converted miraculously on the road to Damascus. You can read about that in Acts 9. But don't skip over. Before he was on that road, why was he there in the first place? What brought Paul to that road? What was his purpose? If you look at verses 1 and 2 in Acts 9, it says that now Saul, that was Paul's name before Christ, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging in the way, that is, Christians, if he found any Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Just before his conversion, Paul had one thing in mind, putting an end to Christ, wiping the name of Jesus off of every corner of the world. That was Paul's mission. That was Paul's goal. And then we read that Saul, at the height of his power and glory among his people, was confronted directly by Jesus, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that moment, we realized Saul was dead in his sin. It didn't matter how much power or authority or wealth Saul had, he was dead in his sin. And then Paul, his new name, his new identity, his new life, he was made alive again in Christ Jesus in that moment. No longer did he consider himself holy and righteous on his own merit. No longer was he Saul, Pharisee, friend of the high priest. He was Paul servant of God, minister of his gospel. That was his title now. And so a position of humility that constantly points Paul away from his own strength and to his continuing need of God's grace was his identity. Every day was that reminder of Paul's need for God's grace. And that was necessary for Paul, and I'm going to say that that is necessary for all of us, he says. And remember, why is Paul saying all of this in the first place? What's the reason for everything in verses 2 and 13? He just calls himself Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he says, wait a minute. Okay, I called myself a prisoner of Christ. I need to explain a few things. This is not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing to be a prisoner for Christ. In verse 2, he's saying, look, I found purpose in my chains. I'm assuming that you know all about God's grace. I'm assuming about how you knew about God's grace was given to me for you. If you don't understand God's grace, you're going to be all kinds of confused. If you don't know how God has a purpose with all of his grace, then you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. Of course you're going to be upset when I call myself a prisoner of Christ. Well, look at why this is a good thing. Let me tell you why this is a good thing. And that's what we looked at all last week, and that's what we're going to continue looking at today. Why is this a good thing that Paul is a prisoner for Christ Jesus? He wants to tell you about the beauty and the power of God's grace in his life. 
And he's also going to double down on that lowly position of his. Uh, the gospel I laid out to you, I am a prisoner of him who gave it to me. I'm a servant. I'm a minister. I'm completely, utterly, totally at his will. And what a gift that is. What a gift that is. All throughout Paul's writing, you're going to see this, this balance of low and high. We're going to see the lows of Paul's circumstances, the lows of Paul's own ability, and even the lows of Paul's sinfulness that he's going to expose to all of you. And then... Next to all that, we're going to see the all-consuming, the satisfying, completely satisfying high of God's grace and love in Paul's life toward him. Paul is saying what a joy it is to be a slave to God. And if that language sounds like an exaggeration, those are Paul's words that he uses to describe himself. Minister, servant, prisoner, slave. Verse 7 says all of that is by what according to the gift of God's grace. If you think about that, do you know how Paul can say this and not be accused of any sort of false humility? Like, oh, look at me, I am a servant and I am a slave. Oh, look at me. Well, he can say that because Paul, more than anyone, understood the consequences of sin. He was confronted with the reality of sin. And I have four uh, short points but really, they're more like pleas to all of you. So my first plea for all of you is to please confront the reality of your sin. And I just want to say, we're going to be looking at verses 7 and 8 for the majority of today. So if we're 20 minutes in and we're still in verse 7, don't be alarmed. We're going to get through it all. Um, but look at how Paul describes himself in the beginning of verse 8. To the first half of verse 8. Um, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. When Paul was confronted with his own life, when Paul was confronted with his own works, with everything he had built before Christ came and interrupted his life, now he saw sin. A life which, by the way, by every other measure of the world's standards, would have been one that is called to the highest standing. He would have been one called to the holiest of calling. And now Paul looks back and says, oh man, I'm the least. I'm the least of the saints now. And I told you last week, he was not careless with his words. He's being intentional here. He really, really viewed himself as the least of the least of the saints. You know, he was intimately aware, I really believe, intimately aware of his own sin and what that cost in his own life. He was guilty of blasphemy against the holy God. He was guilty of murder against God's own people. And worst of all, in his own mind, he was proud of all that in the moment. He loved doing it. And that's why he's calling himself the least now. And even in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he doubles down. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was open and honest about his feelings. He was open and honest about his failings. And there were many. And there's a reason that he was open and honest about his failings. And really, there are two reasons I'm bringing it up today. Well, three. The first is because I think the text says it, so I've got I've to bring it up. But the other two reasons are this. Um, I'm willing to bet that when I asked you how you felt about the world, most of you, probably not all, but most of you probably felt some level of, I don't know how to describe it, maybe bitterness, maybe some level of, of disgust that you see in the world today, some level of anger. Clearly, there is sin in the world today. You see it. You see sin. And as you think of the wretchedness and the sinfulness of not of the world, but Paul, you can clearly see his sin. And so as I make an attempt to compare it now to our lives today, whenever you are confronted with the idea of sin, you are likely going
going to be comparing it to one of two possibilities. And there are two reasons I want to address it. So I think you're probably likely either thinking of your own sin or you're thinking of somebody else's sin. So let me address both of those thoughts real quick. Okay, let's start with addressing somebody else's sin. Think for a minute in your mind. Don't name names. Who is the worst person that you imagine? I mean, who is just, in your opinion, just the scum of the earth? Like you just, they need Jesus, don't they? Think of that. You all have somebody in mind. Maybe it's someone you personally know. Maybe it's a, it's a famous figure. And it's easy to think about somebody else, isn't it? Maybe you've been hurt by them. Maybe you're thinking, again, of somebody in a really high authority. And they're on the news often, so of course, every single flaw, every single moment of hypocrisy is going to be highlighted. All you have to do is wag a finger and tisk. Or maybe you're going to recall something a little bit more heinous. Maybe it's about somebody in the news more often. If you listen to the news for five minutes, you're going to hear anything between murders, uh, assaults, robberies, and that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. There are men and there are women in the world today that are responsible for such crimes that it makes us shudder sometimes. And it's easy to see how wicked they are, isn't it? Or maybe it's more of a subtle sin. I think you can think of any number of famous preachers who may not exactly be living up to what they practice. Now, not every believer is going to be able to see the subtlety in those sins, but you do. You see through the deception, you see through the wickedness. And I'll be clear, it's good to be discerning and it's good to be aware of the evils and the dangers and sins in the world today, but you can't ignore your own. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that you there is all inclusive. So that means you and you and you and you and me and Paul, and everybody in the Ephesian church. Apart from God's grace, you are on equal footing with every wicked example that you came up with in your mind. That person, whoever you were thinking of, is dead in their sins. You're dead in your sins. Paul was dead in his sins. And so to confront the reality of your own sin is to understand that by all rights, you ought to still be dead. And confronting your sin is to understand that the only reason that you're not dead in your sins. Back in verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister. How? How was Paul made a minister? Was it by his virtues? Was it by his talents? Was it by anything that Paul contributed? No, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by what? By his charity, by his good grades? No, by the working of his power, God's power. Paul writes earlier, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. And so Paul, Saul, the chief of the sinners, the zealous Pharisee, the enemy of Christ, was made Paul a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ by God's power and by God's grace. And do you know what that means? Bring back to mind, who were you thinking of? That worst person in the world. Who's the most wicked example that you can think of? That person can be made a minister of the gospel. 
Pick any person on the planet, I don't care who it is, anyone, fill in the blank, can be made a servant of the gospel. Every single person that you thought of as an example of sin can be saved by God's grace. And I know it's hard to believe that sometimes. But anyone can be made a servant of the gospel because everybody has the same issue with sin. So confront the reality of your own sin, okay? That's my charge to you if you were stuck in that thought this morning. Confront the reality of your sin, not anybody else's but yours. Because when you do that, suddenly nobody seems too far gone. If Paul can be saved, anybody can be saved, amen? Because if Paul confronts the reality of his own sin, he uses it as motivation to seek and to save the lost. If you can be saved, anyone can be saved. So let's address the other school of thought for a minute. You have no problem with anything I've just said, to a point. You may be focused, even obsessed a little bit with your own sinful heart. You're confronted with it daily, after all. I don't need to tell you to confront the reality of your own sin. It smacks you in the face every time you wake up. You know you're a sinner. And maybe you really relate to Paul. You know, Paul knew he was a sinner, too. He was the absolute scum of the earth. Is that how you feel, scum of the earth? First, let me say, and you may not believe me, but you're not alone in thinking this way. And there's a reason that Paul was so persistent about his grace. Because we all get stuck in our own heads between one example and another. So don't throw in the towel and say, well, I guess that's just my lot. Don't just say, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. It's Psalm 22.6. Is that your life verse? If it is, you need to read the next stanza in that psalm. I'm not going to read it for you. But you know what? That's fine. Okay, you were a worm, so what? Paul would be the first to call himself a worm. I bet he'd say he's the chief worm and he's the slimiest of them all. But, and don't tune me out, because I'm talking directly to you, I don't want you to make light of this. Paul confronted the own reality of his sin, and he understood the grace that overcame those consequences. So my second plea is to take comfort in the reality of his grace. An understanding of your sin must come with an understanding of grace. I think you give yourself a little bit too much credit if you think that you are irredeemable. I mean, who do you think you are? God's grace can work on everybody but you? And then, yes, I can hear the yeah buts. But I shouldn't be struggling with this sin. But I shouldn't be having these thoughts. You know, in my head, I see the promises of God in Scripture, and I know them to be true, but my heart feels cold. I shouldn't be this way. I should be better. Maybe you're even quoting Ephesians. You're quoting Paul. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And that's my problem. I'm not seeing any good works in my life, so I must not be walking in him. What if I'm not saved? And I'll say it again, you give yourself far too much credit if you assume that you are irredeemable. But for the sake of this point, let's assume for a minute that you're right. And I do agree with you on some of those points, right? You are not meant to feel that way. You're not meant to feel distant. You're not meant to feel like your heart is cold. So what if you really truly aren't saved? What if you really truly are living in the passions of your flesh? You're really truly carrying out the desires of the body and your mind. You're living it like a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Does that sound familiar? 
What is the gospel? What is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming to you right now? What is in this context? Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, underline that, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So how was Paul saved? Grace. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of whose power? His power. How is anybody saved? God's grace through his power. I'll say it again for Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. That's the gospel that Paul is building off of. That's the gospel that is available now to both Jew and Gentile, to you and to me. So what if you really, truly aren't saved today? What if your whole life has been a lie? Paul says that he, the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst, the least of the least, was made a servant of the gospel. So anybody, including yourself, can be made a servant of the gospel. So believe now. Confess now. Repent now. If you want to be saved, you can be saved. Yes, you absolutely need to confront the reality of your sin, but don't stay there without grace. Let that lead you to take comfort in the reality of his grace. And when you do these things, what's next? My third plea for all of you, be changed by the riches or by the reality of his riches. Be changed by the riches of Christ. That is Paul's purpose. Verse eight, again, to me, though I am the very least of the saints, so he's confronting his own sin here, and then what's the next important reality? This grace was given. Why? Why was it given? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul confronted the reality of his own sin. Paul took comfort in the reality of God's grace, and now Paul says, go, be changed by the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's why I've been called to serve God. I'm here to let you know about him. That's what Paul's saying. I'm here to fill you and everyone you know in on God's plan for you. And if you can look at me, Paul, the worst of the worst, the one who watched in joy as your brother Stephen was stoned to death, the one who persecuted Christ, if God's grace is for me, then you, the church of Ephesus, you, the church in Fayette, can know that God's grace is for you too. Paul was not so far gone that he could not be redeemed or used. And you are not so far gone that the riches of Christ cannot change you. And so be changed by him. Don't believe that you are stuck where you are, no matter what. You are not stuck where you are. Whatever you were thinking of earlier, whether it was your own sin or somebody else's, you are meant to change, to grow in Christ. That is the beauty of these unsearchable riches. Just like the word mystery last week, right? there's this danger of misinterpreting the word. Right, unsearchable. What does that make you think of? It doesn't mean that we can't find it. It doesn't mean that if we search for it, it's going to be out of reach. It means that there is so much that you can't possibly explore at all. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Psalm 103.12. Try and quantify that. Try and put it in a spreadsheet. 
You know, back in Ephesians 2, 7, it shows just one example of his riches. These are the riches, the unsearchable riches that Paul is talking about. In the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches. What does that look like? Of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's just one aspect of his riches. Infinite grace toward us. Never-ending kindness toward us. There is so much that we will never, not now between the, uh, here and the end of eternity, be able to experience all of it. There's always going to be new reserves of grace for us. And when you understand that truth, that absolute, unchanging, never-ending truth, you will be changed. So why aren't we changed? When confronted with the reality of infinite grace and kindness, why aren't we changed? Well, I will say, change may not be in an instant. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we change from one degree of glory to another. But we will be changing. We will be growing. And yes, we're going to be stumbling our way through closer inch by inch to a better image of Christ Jesus. We are called to change, and not just for a moment. We are called to change forever. We are called to hold on to this gospel and carry it with us the rest of our lives. Paul wasn't content with just telling the Ephesians God's plan. You know, he couldn't possibly go back to his old life, could he? Can any of us go back to our old life? He couldn't possibly stop moving forward. Can you even imagine if for a minute he decided that he was all set at a certain point? Now that Timothy is off and running, I'm going to settle down and retire and live life by the sea. No. No, verse 9, the second part of his purpose was to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Paul was not done with the church in Ephesus. The message he is saying is too important not to keep preaching it. Paul will carry on and he will continue his purpose from then until the day of his death. We are called to carry on. We are called to continue closer and closer and closer to Christ each day. We are growing in our faith each day, growing in his grace each day, one degree of glory to the next, each day. And so confront the reality of your sin. Take comfort in the reality of his grace. Be changed by the reality of his riches. And fourth and final plea, carry these realities as the church. Carry these realities as the church. What does Paul say Where does Paul say his ministry brings us? The redeemed sinners, the dead brought to life. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, so that, here's the purpose, through the church, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Did you catch that switch there? For for nine verses in chapter three, Paul was using this very personal language. He said, I, Paul, I was made. Grace was given to me through, though I. And then you get to verse 10, and he doesn't say that I, Paul, might make the manifold wisdom of God known. He says, through the church. And so what is our purpose here? What is the purpose of the church? We, look around, we are to go on to make the manifold wisdom of God known. And what does that mean? If we have a mission as a church, 
We need to understand what that mission is, don't we? Well, I want you to connect the word wisdom with mystery here for a second. So God's manifold, which is many-layered wisdom, goes hand-in-hand with a mystery that Paul has revealed to us. All right, where that, think of the mystery, where that many layers are being pulled back and revealed. So God's wisdom, he's saying, was already revealed when the mystery was revealed. The wisdom that we are supposed to proclaim through the church is the wisdom that was realized when his plan came to fruition. And what was that plan? When the purpose in Jesus Christ was made known on that cross. We're here to proclaim the cross. The church is here to proclaim how incredible it is that God, in all of his infinite wisdom, set his son Jesus at the perfect time in history. He set his son Jesus to fulfill every single letter of the law, to fulfill every prophecy that was written about him, and to go willingly on a cross and to die in our place. And then all according to plan, he rose three days later. He defeated death once and for all, and now, through grace, he gives his life. That is our purpose. In everything, in all circumstances, whether we're in prison, whether we're in church, whether we're at work, at home, on vacation, in Fayette, Maine, or in Guatatola, Mexico, that is our purpose. As the church, just picture with me for a minute. Can you imagine what would happen if every time we met inside these walls, outside these walls, wherever you see each other, we had the same purpose in mind? What if we were assured by one another every single time we saw each other? What would happen if we confronted our sins together? If we showered each other with God's grace time and time again together every day that you see each other? If every time that we opened our mouths together, it was to speak of the unfathomable riches of God's glory and grace realized in Christ Jesus? Can you imagine? What would happen if we really believed that every person we cross paths with may be redeemed? What would happen? Well, there wouldn't be a soul left in the world. There wouldn't be an angel left in the heavens, and there wouldn't be any of Satan's forces able to avoid coming face-to-face with the reality of God's glory. That's what Paul's saying here. So can you imagine that? I hope you can, because that's the plan. That's what we're called to do. That's our purpose. Before the foundations of the world, that was made clear. Read that again. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We were dead apart from Christ. Now through him, we live. Christ came as the fulfillment of a plan set in motion before all time, and how can we compete with that? How can we discover this to be true for the first time in our life and just carry on like nothing's different? If you believe that this is true, we have a duty to carry this on as the church. We have a duty to live differently. Imagine again what might happen if we as the church collectively understand the reality of sin. We don't let it go unchecked. And then what? imagine again if we live in the reality of his grace and we shower it on one another and then we see the riches of Christ that come with it and then carry that on to see it happen every day for the rest of our lives. Well, just know that we're not going to be alone doing that. Remember, it's not by our strength that we are called to carry on that mission, because we can't do it ourselves. It's not because of our own self, but because of what Christ has already done on that cross. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
Do you understand the reality that we, the church, now have? We who were once dead in our sins, children of wrath, now through Christ live boldly and confidently and have access, underline that word, access to the one and true living God. Imagine you were a first century Gentile reading that letter for a minute. They would say, yeah, well, priests, they have access to God, not regular people. The high priest has direct access to God once a year, not regular people. And that's after days of preparation, after days of ritual cleansing and atonement, they have access to God, and that's only if you're Jewish. What's the reality of the church now? You and I, we all have direct access to God the Father because of what Christ has done for us. Are we living like we believe that? Do you believe that? Are we, the church, living like we believe that truly and fully together. In the middle of this crazy, crazy, topsy-turvy world that seems to go on the path of destruction over and over again, I know we are tempted to despair. And I know you're tempted to look out there and say, what is going on? How can this happen? And so when you're tempted, remind yourself of the reality of sin and grace and riches. That is enough to give us strength to carry on. And Paul wraps it up before he gets back to his original thought in verse 14 with an encouragement. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul knew that life wasn't easy. The world we live in isn't easy. I think most of us, if not all of us, probably would have been worried in that situation as the church in Ephesians. I mean, think of it for a second. This is Paul. He's writing to you You know he's in prison. You know he's in danger. He could have been executed at any moment, and they can do the math. They're probably looking around. Any one of them could be next. Who's going to say the wrong thing to the wrong person? Who's going to be the next person writing a letter from prison? Well, whatever it means for them, whatever following Christ means for us, Paul says don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. I am in prison for a purpose. Remember that. These chains are being used for the gospel. Rejoice with me. This is good. Understand that. What does this mean for us if we're going to carry on as a church? It means that we should be encouraged. God's grace is here with me, he's saying, and it's with you. I am eternally secure in Christ no matter what happens, and so are you. I have riches immeasurable in Christ no matter what happens, and so do you. I take comfort in him, so take comfort in that. No prison, no sword can keep Christ's love away from me. And so, in closing, think back to that first question. How do you feel about the world today? When you look out there, when you read the news, when you watch the news, when you look on Facebook, social media, whenever you get any sort of glimpse of the sin in the world, take comfort. Don't lose heart. Confront the reality of your sin. Be comforted by the reality of his grace. Be changed by the reality of his riches. And then carry on these realities through the church. And know that nothing in this world is going to stand in the way of God's purpose. The world is a dark place, I know it is, but take comfort, don't lose heart. 
We have a wise God with an infinitely wise plan, and nothing in the way is going to stand in the way of that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you're good, and your ways are not our ways, but how unsearchable is your goodness and your kindness and your grace towards us. And I know, Lord, that we look out there in the world and we are tempted to to despair and we are tempted to think about all the, the awful tragedies and how can this be and where are you in the midst of this? And so, Lord, I just ask right now that you would just shower us in your grace and we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in control, that you have a plan. Lord, will we take comfort in that? Will we take heart in that? Now, would you spur us on as the church to go from here and to remember this truth? Would you encourage us as the church to go out and change lives, to change our own lives, but change those who we come in contact with? And I pray for every single person that we were thinking of today when we thought of sin, when we thought of wickedness. Lord, I pray that you would change their hearts or bring them to a place of repentance and confession and belief in you, no matter how crazy that might seem to us in that moment, because we know that if you saved us, you can save anyone. If you saved Paul, you can save anyone. We thank you for that truth, for that reality. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.